Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-425 of the Run Run Live podcast. And well, here we are again. It's a beautiful, sunny, single-digit February morning, and I'm talking to you. Ollie, the collie, he's being a pain in the butt. I was on a trip all week, so he didn't get his runs in, and he's very stressed out. He's being the toddler terrorist today. He's already chewed on a couple of socks and the channel changer and is harassing me with a toy as I try to write. And that's a dog's life. Today, I have a very special and personal conversation with John and Tom, who are both prostate cancer experienced and are members of our running circle. But more importantly, both of them are friends of mine, and I'm honored that they were kind enough to share their stories. In section one, I'll talk about the non-linearity of the mileage curve. (laughs) And in section two, I'll give you a write-up of a book I read on the plane this week that I really liked called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. And all links, including the one where you donate to my prostate cancer campaign for Boston, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, are in the show notes, which, by the way, you can always get on my website, runrunlive.com, but you should be able to access on your phone or other listening device as part of the episode metadata. If you like the audio version of that, it's HTTP colon slash slash support dot zero cancer dot org forward slash go to forward slash run run live. All right. It's been a couple of busy weeks. My training has been going well. I knocked out a nice 13.8 mile step up run last weekend, and I'm starting to transition into more longish tempo as we're getting closer to Patriots Day. It's been a relatively mild winter, but the last couple of weeks as we got into February here, it got a little bit colder. And last weekend when I was out on my long run, I started at about 14 degrees, and I forgot my thick gloves. So, you know, you run around the house, you got to get all your stuff in the bag. I forgot my thick gloves that I usually wear when it's below 20. And I was a little worried when I got out there and I was running, and I was super cold that I might have to knock on someone's door to warm up during that first hour of that run. You know, it it used to be I'd just run harder to warm up, but that's not a great strategy for me anymore on a multi-hour run. My bottle froze, my headphones failed, but hey, it was sunny. It was windless, so it wasn't too bad. And I was able to do some thinking and focus on my run. And there is no good or bad run there only is the is at this point. And about an hour in, I swung by uh, the starting point and picked up a couple of my running club buddies for the second loop, who I hadn't seen for a while, and it was good to catch up. Was able to close out the last 30 minutes at close to race pace. So all in all, a pretty solid outing. 
two months out from Boston. Monday morning, I was off to Vegas. I always forget that Vegas is in the western time zone. It feels like it should be in mountain time. But anyhow, being western, that's the same as like LA or San Fran, that puts it three hours ahead of me, which which actually helps for those morning workouts because you're, you're awake anyhow. So I knocked out a 30-minute time trial on the treadmill Monday morning. <laughs> I showed up at the gym in the casino at 5 a.m. when it opened, and it was... It was already three quarters full. There was a and there was a, a line for the equipment when I stepped off about an hour later. That's all those East Coasters heading for the gym. And I get a kick out of it, right? I got a kick out of it. I just imagine them thinking, who's this old guy knocking out seven minute miles at five AM? And I've turned the corner a bit on worrying about being so much slower now. And I'm I'm just quite grateful to be getting at it still at all and be able to do anything a bit quicker makes me really happy. I got out onto the strip on the last day, you know, ran up up down the strip before I headed to the airport. Always fun to get out, take a look around. And it was in the mid-60s. Good to see the sun. I always like running up and down the strip. You can do the whole strip in Las Vegas in about six miles. You have to run up, up and down the pedestrian bridges. It's not optimized for running. It's optimized to get you into the casino, but I like it. You know, it's good. A lot of good visuals. The people are fun to watch. The air in the desert is dry, but in the mornings, it's a bit misty with the sadness of self-loathing and empty wallets. But that's not my story. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Mileage curves. Let's break it down. One of the big light bulb moments for me when I started to get serious about training and racing was that the quantity of miles that you run makes a difference. Having just listened to what I just said, That's a big duh statement, isn't it? But no, there's a nuance, and that's the important part. The curve is nonlinear. And I know what you're thinking. He's going to go full nerd again. Perhaps if I mumble something about the weather, look at my shoes, check my watch, and sidle for the door. No, 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 no. You don't need to run away. Well, yeah, you know, the thought of creating a graph right here, right now, fills me with childlike joy, but I'll resist. Instead, I'm going to draw on my business instincts and ask the most important question in the world, why do they care? Very good question, yes. Why does anyone care about what you're about to say? How can you put it in a way that they do care? Gratitude, empathy, kindness. You care. Because this curve that plots the benefit of running versus the miles you run per week is not a straight line. You care because that means, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, there are sweet spots where you get more benefit for less investment. On the flip side, there are also dead spots where you get very little benefit for much investment. And you care... Because if you get the light bulb moment about the non-linearity of this curve, you can hack it to your own advantage. So what is the objective function that we are going to turn our I loose on? See, that's not AI, artificial intelligence, just I intelligence. I call it I. (laughs) There's a specific benefit that I'm talking about here. I'm going to call it the PR function. And I'm going to define it as showing up for a race, 5K, 10K, half or full marathon, and running a PR. My PR function is a measurement of speed and distance. I'm going to call it faster. It's not a measurement of happiness or weight loss or health in any way. Just performance. So picture this graph now. Like the one any fitness app is going to show you, the time and weeks across the bottom and the number of miles or Ks or hours in bars going vertically. That's that's the graph. You have this graph. If you looked at your phone right now, somewhere you have this graph. But the important part is overlaying 
the PR function as a red line going from left to right. And it's it's not going to be a straight line. One mile doesn't equal one PR point. In my experience, the line looks sort of like an S-curve, which makes sense because we're describing a natural system, and that's a natural curve. So, so right, specifically, you remember when you first started running? This is one of those places where the curve is very steep. You're going to get gains that are very big for a very modest investment. Maybe you started out running three miles, three times a week. And starting from zero, you get amazingly fit and capable after only a few weeks of this. And it keeps going. You increase that, you know, that nine miles to 15 to 20. And all of a sudden, you're a runner. It's exponential. 20 miles a week consistently. And those PRs start to pile up. But then that curve starts to flatten out. Somewhere around the 20 miles a week, your invested miles stop buying as much PR. And that's a little bit ironic because this is typically where we get that new runner's bug. We get the bug and we start signing up for stuff, longer races, joining the running clubs, starting podcasts, that sort of thing. But all is not lost. There's another inflection point where you, you again start getting a sizable return on your invested miles. And in my experience, this is as you start to approach 50 miles a week consistently in your peak weeks, and you get more big gains in performance. So 50 miles a week sounds a bit daunting to the new runner. You can only make it work by running six to seven days a week and or tossing in a significant long run or two. But that was my light bulb moment. And I really don't know if there's another steep part of this curve somewhere above the 60 mile a week mark. I was never able to sustain that much volume. Professional marathoners routinely put in weeks of over 100 miles. Yeah, really, 100 miles a week. That's an average of 20 miles a day. For me, after 50 miles a week, the curve flattens out again. The invested miles are not reciprocated by any big gains. So there's another plateau over 50. But back to the why do you care part of this discussion. You care because most runners hit that first flat spot on the curve and assume they have gotten all the PR performance they can reasonably get. Whereas the truth is that they've hit one of those plateaus we often hear about. And a consistent incremental investment in miles could kick their performance in the pants. I mean, 50 miles a week is a lot of miles for most people. But if you call that the top of the range and say 30 to 35 the bottom in a series of waves during a three to four month campaign, it becomes less daunting. That becomes doable. And that'll give you a big bump in your performance. And we'll leave that discussion for another day. For now, just remember that the curve is not a straight line, and there's another big gain in performance as you get close to 50 miles a week. And that's why you care. And now for today's featured interview. Hello and welcome, gentlemen. Why don't I have you guys introduce yourselves, give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and why we're talking, and I'll start with you, John. All righty. Well, I'm John Vaughn, uh, also known as John from the Poi from my running blog way back in the day, Run New England at blogspot.com. And uh, Chris and I have run together on a time or two in the Groton Road Race and have been friends through Nick and Dan and Steve Runner and just a lot of the podcasting community over the years. And somewhere along the line, I ended up contracting prostate cancer. Do you contract cancer? I don't know if that's the right word, but because I was on top of my health, I was uh, following my PSA and found out I had prostate cancer about five years ago. And so um, I had my prostate removed and have been cancer free, thank God, since uh, for like five years. It'll be six years in August that I uh, hit my mark. So my message that I try and spread for is to be proactive and to 
know your numbers and to stay on top of your health. And I advocate because I have two boys, 32 and 35, Gary and Steve, and everything I do, I do for them. But in essence, it's really for all of our young men coming up because one in nine men will face prostate cancer. And I don't want my kids to be two of them. Yep. And Tom? Yeah, well, I think I'm going to turn out to be the anti-John. I started running about, little, probably 12 years ago and been doing half marathons and 5Ks and even managed to do Boston once in that time. And I had my PSA checked regularly starting in my late 40s, and it was always 2, 2.5, 2. It was all great numbers. And then I started getting symptoms in the summer of 2018, and by the fall, I was diagnosed with stage 4 prostate cancer. And as a bonus, they found an unrelated tumor in my bladder. So I went through the whole treatment, androgen deprivation therapy and chemotherapy and radiation. And I got to the point where the cancer was not detectable anymore in my blood. And I ran a half marathon. And now I have just been diagnosed with neuroendocrine variant of prostate cancer, which doesn't output any PSA, doesn't output any other blood markers. The only way to detect it is through biopsy and PET scans. And there was some symptoms around that too. Well, because they knew you had the cancer before, they were probably looking for stuff, right? Yes, I had what I would call at first a funny sensation urinating, then it turned into painful urination. And that actually garnered an extra cystoscopy where they go in and look around the bladder and that checked out fine. And on the way out, they looked at the prostate and they mentioned something about friable tissue, which is tissue that can just flake away and bleeds easily. And it's like, oh, that's probably why you're getting pain in a bit of blood. Four days later, I ended up in the emergency room with severe abdominal pain because the tumor had grown from the prostate up into my bladder and blocked off my kidney. So it right to the bladder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that so was... Went, went back in and got some stents? Yeah, I just had a stent put in three days ago. I start chemotherapy on Monday. And when the stent was put in, I also had what's called a power port put in so that they don't have to hunt around for veins. They just go into my chest and get direct access to the main vein going into the heart. Yeah, that's not a great outcome for you. That's a rough thing. But um, the question that I have, right, because I'm going to go ahead and run the Boston Marathon for Zero, the prostate cancer charity this year. You know, the question I have for you guys, the first question is, why should people care about prostate cancer? This is an old guy disease. Old guys uh, seem to run the world. Why should we care about a couple of old guys getting prostate cancer? John? Well, it's true that a lot of times men will develop prostate cancer later in life as a almost somewhat nor in a normal course of life. But more and more, men are being diagnosed more frequently, more often, and with more deadly disease. So we are trying to create an environment where men are more actively trying to stay on top of their health. And what Tom has gone through hopefully will be the rarity as opposed to, because he knew his body, he knew his, his health, he was on top of things and still ended up with prostate cancer in, in a tough situation. So my hope is that people will get their PSA test, they'll know their numbers so that they can be proactive and find that the cancer before they have symptoms. What happens a lot of times is that if you're not on top of it in a normal scenario, by the time you have symptoms, it's because you are experiencing problems with bone or bladder cancer. And then they go and find out, oh, well, you've got, you've had prostate cancer for quite some time and now it's spread. One of the reasons why I have had a successful outcome so far, and, and I say so far because it can still change, but is because I was able to catch my cancer before it left the prostate. And that's at least right now, before there's a day that there's a cure and, and, or some sort of way to prevent it completely, that's my mission is to spread the word so that people can deal with it while it's still encapsulated within the prostate and aren't facing some of the terrible and serious consequences like Tom is describing. And I think men in general, and Tom, I don't know if you see this in the folks you've been talking to over the last couple of years, but men in general are really good at ignoring symptoms. Yes, they can be extremely good at ignoring symptoms. I ignored my symptoms for a while in part because I knew my PSA number was healthy, so it couldn't possibly be cancer. I've heard other stories of men who, when it goes to the bones, you tend to develop back pain. And so they'll spend months, if not a year, 
trying to work it from a back pain angle when in fact it's actually been prostate cancer the whole time. And in a case like that, if you do a PSA test, it should be pretty obvious because when my cancer did develop, my PSA was up over 200. And see, my PSA never got above 4.2. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah, so a big difference. What is a PSA? So a PSA test is a prostate-specific antigen. It's a simple blood test that they do to measure this antigen in your blood, and it comes out with a number per milliliters of blood. And if it's around or below two, I think, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is, that's usually kind of a normal PSA number. As it rises, it becomes more, the potential that you've got a cancer issue, it goes up. But there's people with enlarged prostates and high PSAs that don't have cancer. And vice versa, like myself, I had a fairly low PSA number. And then after watching it bounce up and down a little bit, we did a biopsy. And that's the only way to truly diagnose whether it's cancer or not. So that's why PSA can still be a little bit tricky, but by knowing what the numbers are, you've given a heads up. Yeah. And new in this world, which I just discovered this year, much to my delight and chagrin is they don't do the finger test anymore. They've decided there's no correlation between a weird shaped prostate uh, and cancer. So it changed the whole nature of my relationship with my doctor. For the better or the worse, Chris? We're, we're just not as, we're not as close anymore. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's just part of my annual physical. So sometime each fall, I'll trot in there and he'll give yeah. me once over, interview yeah. me and do all the blood tests. And he used to do the manual prostate exam, which was a bit uncomfortable, but they don't do that anymore because they think the PSA is, more, is better. Yeah. And the irony is that may have found my cancer before my PSA went up. One of the things that we haven't mentioned is that we've been using the term prostate cancer, but there are actually different kinds of cancers within the prostate cancer umbrella. There's what I would call the classic, which is what John has, which is the, it starts off slow and you can find it early and be curative by removing it. I have a rare variety that affects about 3% of men called introductal carcinoma, this is harder to detect and tends to spread a lot faster. So my cancer got to my bones before it reached the left side of my prostate. When they did the Mm. biopsy, the left side of my prostate was pretty much cancer-free. And then the neuroendocrine that I've been diagnosed with, that is um, neuroendocrine cells are the cells that receive a signal from the nerve and then output a little chemical signal to nearby cells. And they're all over your body and they control things like... um, releasing stomach acid or making goosebumps and things like that. And the interesting thing is the treatments for normal prostate cancer, when you start depriving the body of testosterone to stop the cancer from growing, it can actually cause the cancer to change into this neuroendocrine variety. So Mm. they're expecting this to become more and more common going forward. Which is not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of advances in terms of survivability, not just if you catch early. Case in point is uh, my coach, right, Jeff? Right. Been living stage four prostate cancer for, what, five years now, maybe? Yeah, at Uh, least. Yep. And it's certainly not a pleasant experience for him, but with the chemo, like the, they have very specific chemo now, so it's not as much as a of a just nuke every cell in the body and hope you get the cancer. It's it's much more targeted now and much more effective. Well, and that's one thing that Zero, the endoprostate cancer, who is going to be the beneficiary of your run for Boston this year, in a couple of weeks, the 23rd of February, I'm going to go down to Washington, D.C. to advocate Congress to continue spending. And we're going to learn about some of the newest research too. And they're doing such incredible things. I mean, the, first of all, the things that Tom's describing it's just amazing that the doctors and the researchers have figured out this stuff. But there's people doing genomic sequencing and all kinds of things that I have no clue what it really is, but they're figuring out you know, what's fueling cer- certain types of cancers and in the hopes that they could actually turn off the fuel for different types of cancers and know how to treat different cancers in different ways because Tom's cancer and my cancer, totally different animals and could be needed to be treated differently. So if we could find that out earlier, that would benefit everybody. So there's all kinds of great research going on. And this is where your money is going, Chris, that you're raising, that zero is very important. There's a lot of things zero does beyond helping with research and and stuff with, with mentoring and helping 
patients and survivors and caregivers. And it's a great community that Zero has built. But um, the research and, and things like that is, is also very important. Yeah, I think that's important because, you know, people get a little numbed out to charitable giving and the cancer talk. But it's important to say, hey, there's progress being made. Yeah. It's not just a black hole. Yeah. Right. And for example, the treatment I'll be getting for the neuroendocrine cancer, it's actually a lung cancer treatment that was approved in March of last year. So it's only been available with outside of clinical trials for about 10 months. And it's just neuroendocrine cancer is very similar to small cell lung cancer. So a lot of the same treatments work. So yeah, I definitely second John's point about the research being vital and coming up with new options. The other thing, since you're running Boston, exercise is incredibly important to being able to both tolerate treatment and make treatment more effective. So if you're in shape, you'll be better poised to withstand treatment and get a response to it. And it'll help with things like fatigue and pain and so forth. And I would imagine it helps mentally too, Tom. I mean, following you, I see that in that you've got this battle with the chemo, but then it feels real good as a victory to be able to come out of that and do something, right? Oh, yeah. And especially um, the running club has access to the indoor track on Wednesday nights. And I'd have a chemo infusion Tuesday, go running Wednesday night. Everyone was cheering me on because they knew what battle I was in. And it felt fantastic. I mean, I'm like, I'm going to beat this. And yeah. I almost got away with it, too. You're not yeah, done yet. Those <laughs> kids. Yeah. So even before that, does the research show that there's a connection between being an athlete of some sort, or at least being fit and preventing this sort of cancer? Or is it just um, a luck of the draw? I believe it's largely luck of the draw. Although certainly if you don't exercise and you're overweight and you've got diabetes, that just makes you prone to many more cancers. Yep. And there, I think, is proof that if you're in shape when you get diagnosed with cancer, your chances of surviving the cancer for longer are much better. Yep, yep, because your body has uh, more more inherent strength to uh, to get you that's, the uh, treatment, right? That's a good way to put it. I, I would liken a chemo session to a long training run. It's going to beat your body down. You feel awful afterwards. But if you've been doing long training runs, your body's used to getting beaten down and coming back. So at a cellular level, it's the same kind of stress and the same kind of recovery. So your body's just used to it. So I hear a lot of talk about um, nutrition in this these conversations as well, right? I hear these people say, oh, you know, started eating kale and the cancer went away sort of stuff. What do you guys see on that in this realm? I'll start. I'm sure Tom has a lot of thoughts on it too, but there is so many different things. You, you can find anything on the internet that you want to hear. If you want to figure out that eating nothing but animal fat will cure cancer. You can find somebody on the internet saying that. But there's just no doubt that all the research points back to healthy diet, which just includes the simple things that we, especially everybody listening to this podcast, knows and understands. It's whole foods. It's lots of plants. It's fruits and vegetables, healthy nuts, healthy fats. And if you're going to eat meat, chicken is probably, and turkey is probably better than red meat. And if you're going to eat red meat, eat lean meat. Don't eat a ribeye, eat a uh, filet. And if you're going to follow a diet, Certainly the DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet are going to be the two most likely to provide you overall health. Now, certainly if you're fighting diabetes, you're going to have specific things that you're going to want to do. But I think when it comes to prostate cancer, I can't speak to all cancers, but I think just an overall whole food plant-based diet is going to be the most healthiest option. Tom, what do you think? No, I agree exactly with that. And the only thing I can add is when you hear these stories about, oh, I refused chemotherapy and went to a vegan diet and beat cancer, a lot of times when you talk to such people, you find out that, oh, they did have surgery and radiation, then refused the chemotherapy and changed their diet. So people are sometimes not totally forthcoming with the truth in such cases. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of magical thinking going on in our world these days, anyhow, right? For sure. Yeah. But that's okay. People should have their fun, right? <laughs> yeah. And but, it's all and fun until somebody goes down the wrong path into a point when it's just too darn late to come back from it. These are decisions when, when I help mentor men, I'm a mentor with zero. So a lot of times I'll be connected with a, a man who's newly diagnosed within a few weeks of being diagnosed to help him navigate some of the options. And, and I'm not there to tell him what to do, but there to, to help him 
find the resources so that he can figure out with his caregiver survive the people that his family and the people he'll be surviving with what the best course of action is and um I see sometimes there's people that have really gone on to find some really crazy things that they are giving some serious consideration that might actually cure them of this terrible disease when really they probably just need to follow their doctor's advice and do what they, the doctor tells them. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The other thing is you start to get into a certain age group, you start thinking about you could potentially be around for a long time. So you got to say, how do I make this sustainable over the next few years, right? How do I I keep this going and not have it just be episodic? For me, I was diagnosed at 55 and I'm 60 now. And so for me, I ended up having the radical prostatectomy, which removed my prostate, even though there were side effects involved with that. For me, it was the better option because I'd still be alive at, you know, hopefully I'll still be alive at 70 as opposed to dead from metastatic, the spread of the cancer. But if you're diagnosed at 75 or 80, 85, then chances are you might die, you'll probably die from something else other than the cancer at that point. But in each case, there are aggressive forms and there's non-aggressive forms. And that's where the research comes in as being becoming more and more helpful. They do a lot of stuff. It's a very active uh, charity. They do a lot of runs and they sponsor a lot of people. So I'm hoping to get more involved and get uh, the director there on the phone in the next couple of weeks and talk, have him talk me through all that stuff. Because there's there's opportunities, not just opportunities for people to donate, but there's opportunities to take part in events, to yep. run events, to mentor, like you said, all this kind of stuff. So. Our friend Bill Rogers has been running the Boston Zero Run. He didn't do it last year, but all the years before that I've been involved with the Boston Run, which is always the second, I think it's the second Sunday in September, which I think this year will be like the 13th of September. Uh, September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and it's always that second Sunday. And uh, hopefully we can get Bill Rogers back there again. I know uh, we're going to get Wally from the Boston Red Sox. He was there last year cheering everybody on. We had a lot of fun. So even though it's a serious thing, the the Boston run is, um, and all the runs nationally, uh, we're doing one in Rhode Island. I think, I don't know, there's been like three or four new ones introduced, but you can go to zero, the end of prostate. Actually, it's zerocancer.org is the website and find the uh, run that'll be in your community and hopefully join us. Yeah. And other than that, make sure you're going in and get yourself checked out on a regular basis and not ignoring symptoms. Although it's sure. hard because I don't know if there's a day I wake up where I'm not exhausted and sore. So yeah, you know, old and broken. That's how. We- yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I know two other guys who had similar symptoms to me at about the same time as my original diagnosis, and they turned out to be things like prostatitis, which was an inflammation of the prostate, and the other one, it's like, oh, you just have a weak vein in your prostate that bleeds occasionally. And totally benign explanations. Yep. Huh. So what's our um, top three takeaways from this experience so far, guys? Well, uh, for me, I mean, I would just say, number one, get checked. Stay on. When you turn 50, there's a certain number of tests that you should take a colonoscopy and know your PSA, you know, certain things that you just need to do if you're going to be in charge of your health. So sign up and go into your doctor and say, okay, what do we got to do and take care of business? That's number one. Then number two is just to make sure that you're working with a trusted person. If you do find that your PSA is bouncing around, I was so fortunate to have a trusted uh, urologist that helped guide me through the process that led me to a biopsy that led me to the, the cancer diagnosis. And then three, is that if, God forbid, you are diagnosed, which one in nine men will be diagnosed, that uh, you go to zerocancer.org, or there's other resources too, which are very good, but go to a trusted source for good quality information to help navigate the process. And you, Tom, what are your top two or three takeaways? Unfortunately, with my experience, I can't really support the PSA test because it let me down entirely, but I would still recommend people get it. My things would be definitely stay on top of your health. Don't ignore symptoms, especially if it involves blood and urine or other fluids and stay fit and healthy and just get to know your body and you'll start getting signs that something's going wrong before you're diagnosable, most likely. Yeah, and I, I guess that's a great truism for all writers. We, if you're training and you're used to listening to your body, you probably get an earlier indicator that something's going sideways, right? Yeah. yeah. So on the Garmin running watch, it um, my new one gives me a VO2 max estimation. And yeah. that number has gone up and down in lockstep with my disease. All right. All so right. 
There you go. Watch your VO2 max. Yes. <laughs> if it starts going down, so even though you're training harder, start worrying. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, even just the, the heart rate and uh, other indicators like that, even just the way you feel, right? I'll know if something's off. That's how I figured out my AFib problem a couple of years ago. I remember that. Yeah. Because it's like, there's something wrong, right? This doesn't feel right. So uh, yeah, listen to your body. That's what they always say, right? Listen to your body. They do. Okay. Yeah, that's good advice. It, I'm going to move you towards the exit here. Anything else to add? We really appreciate, Chris, you're doing this for zero, for running, not only just raising the money that, that'll be raised, that's great, that's helpful, but the awareness that you're creating, and it's just great. We can't thank you enough. Yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I second that. Thank you for raising the awareness and the visibility. And I also want to take a moment to do a shameless plug for my um, blog. It's um, tominmotion.blogspot.com. It's great, um, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been writing very, um, I guess, honestly about my experiences. And sometimes I think I take a little bit of delight in torturing people with some of the nastier effects of having advanced cancer. Yeah. It's well, raw, it's honest, but it's definitely worth the read. It's always that's what, so people, that's what Yeah, that's what people like. They like that that honesty, right? That's good storytelling. I think you told me that way back when I joined the club and I was supposed to write a little introductory paragraph for the um, club newsletter. Oh, really? We had a newsletter? I don't even remember half of this. <laughs> yeah, I think it died on my watch when I was the secretary. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Have a good weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Love yourself like your life depends on it. And I guess the only good subheader here is because it does. This book is an updated version of an original ebook published by Kamal Ravikant. Karma led me to read it, and I'm glad I did. It's one of those strange things that I've frankly learned to listen to. You find yourself reading a book you've never heard of, that you had no intention of reading, and then it smacks you in the face. It's karma. And this is one of the positives of the connected world we live in. Works like this from people like Kamal can find their way through the gatekeepers and change the world one life at a time. It is a book for this time and place. It is a book for this generation. It's a wise book that just might save lives, maybe yours. And I heard Kamal interviewed on a podcast that I sometimes listen to. As an endurance runner, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Podcasts fill the void of timeless time of long runs and base runs every week. But even so, there are those podcasts that I listen to religiously, those that I binge listen to, and some that I listen to if the topic of the day interests me or I'm running low on inventory. This was one of those. One of the sometimes I listen to podcasts is the Hal Elrod podcast. So Hal wrote the book The Miracle Morning, which was very impactful for me a few years ago. I'll credit Hal with getting me to adopt a mindfulness practice and a morning routine. Listening to Hal's podcast was the start of my toboggan ride of karma to the end of love yourself like your life depends on it. I had a long run. I was short on podcasts. I downloaded Hal's. I listened to Kamal tell his story. I listened to Hal say that Kamal's story saved his life because Hal has been going through a bad cancer and it has been a real physical and emotional challenge for him. So I had some Amazon credits. So I downloaded Kamal's book to my Kindle app when I got back from my run. I like to have a few books in the Kindle queue on my phone, you know, in case I get stuck somewhere. Fast forward to my trip this week. As I'm rushing around packing, I forgot to bring the book that I'm supposed to be reading for work. And there I am, stuck on a plane to Vegas, with nothing to read. And into the book I dive a few hours later, I'm very happy that the universe arranged this for me. So the spoilers start at this point, if you want to bail out and go read it for yourself. It won't take you long. It's a good book. This is the extended version. 
that grew out of an original post by Kamal about how he saved himself from depression and suicide by simplifying everything down to one thing, loving himself. Take this one elemental core thing of self-love and self-engineer a few tactics around it and used it to save his life and then change his life. In this extended version, we get the original simple process of rising from the ashes using self-love. But in addition, he goes into some of the details, specific tactics and methods to leverage the self-love, sort of a methodology. And then lastly, he tags on a story about how we forgot about all this discovery and reverted to the norm, failed again, and had to relearn how to love himself. And this book hit me at the right time. As they say, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I have started a new role at a new company, and as I sat in the cheap seats on that flight to Vegas, even with all I know and practice around mindfulness and positive intent, I was shaky. Less than a month in, I'm drinking from the fire hose. (laughs) Expectations are rising. I feel that exquisite pain of knowing that I am not prepared and being thrown into the fray anyhow. And this makes my mind very noisy. This makes my mind run around in circles like a demented squirrel on crack. Kamal's situation, when he came up with his original piece, was failure. He was the CEO of a startup. He failed. He was depressed and alone. And then one day, in the midst of this depression, this low of lows, he did something, something simple and powerful. He decided to love himself. And this is brilliant, because at the bottom of all that noise in your mind is this fear, this fear that you are not loved. And the problem is that you have set external standards and then begin to hate yourself for not living up to them. You look to others or external things to validate you. And when that doesn't happen, you're left empty with nothing. And if you forget all that and just focus on one thing, self-love, you can wipe the slate clean of those externalities and regain yourself. And this is not self-love in an egoist, fawning, megalomaniac way. This is the self-love of acceptance and gratitude. And briefly, the tactics that he uses to leverage this simplicity are very simple, very similar to the Miracle Morning. It's a four-step process he comes up with. And the first is called the mental loop. And this is where you simply repeat, I love myself as part of your daily practice. This is his pattern breaker. Whenever he starts to go dark, he pauses breathes, and repeats this to himself with some enthusiasm. I love myself, and it snaps him back to the positive. The second tactic he uses is meditation. Start each day with a brief meditation where I love myself is the breathing mantra. And third is the mirror. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't do a lot. This may be uncomfortable for some people. Uh, This is where you set a timer for five minutes and you stare into your own eyes while repeating the mantra, I love myself. Fourth is the one question. So this is the answer to how, how do you bring it out into the world with you? And the question is, if I loved myself truly and deeply, would I let myself experience this? And this is for those times out in the world where the externalities are trying to knock you off track or your bad habits are trying to take over. You say, if I love myself truly and deeply, would I let myself experience this? And in the revised edition, he goes into some detail and question answering on how all this works. The one thing I found very useful was the reminder that daily mindfulness works. 
and is necessary to stay balanced. And as I went through the stress of the week, meeting new people, I was able to close my eyes occasionally, breathe in the self-love, and breathe out the stress. And it allowed me to reset from stress mode and back into empathy, kindness, and gratitude. So I'll leave it there. This is a powerful read, and I have already recommended it to people who were in need of it. And I'm so glad it found me when it did. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, we have run past the pyramids in the desert to the end of episode 4-425. I'm going to continue to be busy here as I ramp up my specificity for the Boston Marathon and spin up on my new job. Uh, you can go to that support.zerocancer.org forward slash go to forward slash run run live to contribute to my cause because I'd appreciate it. I'm going to wrap this up today so I can get out and take Ollie for a walk before he chews through the walls. I am pained to say that he has totally not taken and internalized any of our training. In fact, he's probably reverted. When I say come, he runs in the other direction. And when I say leave it, he laughs and plays keep away. Nothing is safe in the house. Last night as I was sitting and working, he brought me a nickel. A nickel. I told him to come back with at least 20 bucks. And if I try to watch TV, if I sit down to watch TV or sit at all, he bites me until I stand up. And after after that nickel, the next thing he did was steal my wife's hat and chew the pom-pom off the top. He's got demons. The dog has demons. He may need a 12-step program. I didn't want to go out for a walk this morning because it was only three degrees out, and I wanted to get some writing done. I was planning to write on the plane this week, but I was too tired. I ended up watching the last season of Silicon Valley instead. That's a funny show. I don't get HBO at the house. So I can only get certain shows on planes, ironically, and that's one of them. I'm also watching my way through a pretty bad sci-fi series called Farscape on Prime. Kind of a low-budget, lost-in-space meets cosplay. Yeah. Well, now that it's warmed up, I'll take Ollie for a walk and get my errands in. One of the speakers this week was an author from Stanford named Amy Wilkinson, who writes and speaks about The Creator's Code, The Six Essential Skills of Extraordinary Entrepreneurs. And one of her points was small gifts. This resonated with my current practices of gratitude, kindness, and empathy. Her point, to sort of summarize, was to make a practice of giving people small gifts to build trust and, and, yeah, reciprocity in relationships. Not physical gifts, although that's okay too, but the unexpected gifts of small kindnesses and thankfulness. And I'll leave you with that. I mean, who, as you go through your day today, who can you make a point of thanking or complimenting for something they did and maybe help them or you to see the world differently. And I'll thank you for letting me think and talk with you on my <laughs> endurance journey. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. And of course, I'm going to continue on my series of music by giving you track three from Brian Sheff, The Rock Opera by the Nays. Why just the other day I watched my small child play In the sandbox with his friends Upon his needs I tried to attend But he talks to squirrels and plays with God Should I scold or spare the rod? Then it finally occurred to me His eyes don't notice what mine see Cause he sees them 
gush about his birth I've sheltered him for what it's worth He's growing fast, it's plain to see How much longer it will be Till he hears a story from a friend DNA urban legend Then he'll have that twinkle in his eye No longer dumb and shy Cause he sees the His bullies and attractions 